Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is September the 12th, 2018. This is episode 2290. And this might end up being one of the most important episodes of the Survival Podcast I've ever done. I've had questions on this issue here and there throughout the years. I've never had good answers because I don't know. I don't. Fortunately, I have no experience with the topic about that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about CPS and defending families from CPS. And I'm going to bring an author on here in just a moment. His name is Derek Boodle. And he's authored a book called Defending the Innocent from Child Protective Services. This is a direct result of an audience member that knows this man getting in touch with them and saying, get in touch with Jack and get on the show so the audience can hear from you. Um, I had a, a very deep, meaningful, sad circumstance question a few weeks ago on this very issue. And I did my best, but I really didn't know what to say. Uh, Derek does. Uh, Derek is a psychologist and therapist who's turned author and now dedicates himself to defending the innocent from CPS. Everything he does is dedicated to assisting people to keep their kids from the government. Uh, he serves as an advisor for lawyers in court, testifies on behalf of, of, of people in this situation. He, again, is the author of Defending the Innocent from Child Protective Services, now available on Amazon in hard copy and Kindle edition. His book is a step-by-step -step guide to defending yourself against false accusations from child protective services. Um, this book is, you know, begins with first contact all the way to family court, gives detailed descriptions of real-life scenarios and breakdown analysis of each case, what is done, what was learned, and how to defend yourself. You're going to learn today something that when I first read this statement, I didn't want to believe it, but I immediately knew it was true. And it felt like somebody hit me in the gut hard. Your children are for sale. There's money in this, just like there's money in everything that the state does that's a problem. In fact, without money, they can't really be much of a problem. Uh, just as your child is seen as sitting in a desk at school as a dollar sign by school administrators, um, there's federal money that's put into all of these state CPS programs and They need to find a certain number of kids every freaking you know year to take away so that they can get their money. It is, it is sick. It is disgusting. It is disturbing. There are real cases of child abuse, and something needs to be done about those. There is no doubt about that. But it seems to me from the number of people that I've heard from over the years with this, it is far more likely the case the parents have been accused of, of things that never happened and are victims of this system far more frequently then children are rescued by it. It, it. it is sickening. And what makes me really disgusted is how many times you find out it, cases of legitimate abuse were ignored by these people. I, I want to point something out today to you. You owe it to yourself to listen to this, and I don't really plug a lot of books, but I think every person out there should get a copy of this book. And I'm going to tell you why. Statistics show that today, if you're a new parent, and the time it takes you to raise your kids, your odds of being in some contact at some point with CPS are one in three. This is not something to educate yourself with after it happens. 
This is something to educate yourself with before it happens. I put out a short article by Derek today on Facebook that I think if most people had read it, known it, and followed it, they would have avoided the problem before it even became a problem just by knowing certain things they can and cannot do and they can and cannot ask you to do. This is really important, guys. So um, I, I really hope that uh, you get a lot out of today's interview. And it's going to be a pretty interesting show in a lot of ways. I've got some other stuff in it. Before we uh, go ahead and get Derek on the line, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Look, water filtration is important. Uh, I'm watching people right now uh, buy every bottle of water they can get in the Carolinas. Uh, and they have like really good water right now that comes out of their spigot. You don't need water in a bottle. You need containers to put the water in. But on a daily basis, when you're drinking that water, it's best to make sure that you're drinking the healthiest, safest water you can get. And the best way I to know that I know to do that, dollar for dollar, price per gallon over time, is the Berkey Water Filtration System. They look beautiful in your home. They really can't fail. They're a gravity-fed filter. You pour water on the top and take it out of the bottom. And if you're going to get a Berkey, I recommend Jeff, not just because he's my sponsor, but because, well, he's been my sponsor for eight years. And I don't have any complaints about him in eight years. That's a long time to do business with somebody and not have a single person come to you and, and bitch. Uh, he's a maniac at customer service. He takes care of his people. He's going to get you the best deal he can at all times. Check him out today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. You can find his website at directive21.com. Next up today is knifekits.com. This is another company we've been working with forever. I mean, I think I signed Knife Kits as like the third or fourth sponsor we ever put on this show, and they're still here supporting our show. Um, we have a pretty rigorous process by which we vet our sponsors. And, and with something like Knives, you know, what we did is we went into all the blade forums. And we checked about, you know, what is the reputation of this company and all the people that actually buy stuff and make knives. And it was stellar. And, and now all these years later, I can see why. It's because, well, they just do a good job. They have all kinds of cool stuff. You can get a basic kit that anybody can put together and do final fit and finish on. Or you can get raw materials. You get Damascus steel. I have a knife that I carry around with me from time to time made by Patrick Rohrman. And the handle is made out of Mammoth Tusk. I got that Mammoth Tusk from KnifeKits.com. It's a really great project to do with your kids, a really great hobby, and for some people that hobby turns into a side hustle, a part-time business, or even a full-time business. It's a great place to start. Check them out today, knifekits.com. And guys, as we usually do before we get into the main topic, let's get some historical perspective into our intro segment. Uh, we're going to do a day in history today instead of a year in history. We're going to go back to this day, September the 12th, near 1940. The Las Caux cave paintings were discovered near Montauk, France, a collection of prehistoric cave paintings are discovered by four teenagers who stumble upon ancient artwork after following their dog down a narrow entrance into a cavern. The 15,000 to 17,000-year-old paintings consisted mostly of animal representations and are among the finest examples of art from the Upper Paleolithic period. First studied by French archaeologist Henry Edward Posper Brill, uh, the Lascaux Grotto consisted of a main cavern 66 foot wide by 16 feet high. The walls of the cavern are decorated with some 16, 600 painted and drawn animals and symbols and nearly 1,500 engravings. The pictures depict in excellent detail numerous animals including horses, red deer, stags, bovines, felines, and what appear to be mythical creatures. This is a pretty amazing thing. Uh, I've never had the opportunity to be to France, so I've never been to this place. It was actually shut down from viewing uh, quite a few years ago because the paint began to fade 
from the lights being on it, and algae began to grow on it. So they made a, uh, a replica of it that people can go look at. But I've seen enough video and footage of it to understand the, the pure size of it. So again, you're talking about 16-foot-high ceilings in this natural cave. And I think what people that just read about it and don't see it don't realize, there's, there's drawings up on that, like Michelangelo-type painting the dome-type paintings and drawings up 16 feet in the air. This wasn't just a place where like Paleolithic people would come by once in a while and scrawl something on a wall. This was an important place for them. This was very ritualistic. Uh, some of the study that's been done by anthropologists believe that these you know, men that I guess would be equivalent to like a shaman for their tribe or their group, when they went and they would paint these photos of these animals, if they were going to hunt them, that somehow they had captured the animal's soul so that the hunt would be successful, things like that. And this, this, this cave was clearly used for thousands of years. It wasn't like something that was just, you know, like all of this happened in like 50 years or something and then it was not being used. This, this was used as a, a multi-generational important hub of, of life that long ago. I mean, we're talking going back before the last Ice Age. That's how far back we're talking about going here. And it is amazing to me how much humans were doing 15,000, 17,000 years ago and more. And there's not a big historical lesson from that. It's just, I think, one of those interesting things about history. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into it. I, I do want to take just a minute here before I bring Derek on. I have something that's kind of a Hail Mary pass, and, and it's, it's a Hail Mary pass. There may be no way that anybody out there can help, but I, I know a lot of you guys kind of skip intro segment stuff. Please listen to this for me, because you may know this person, or you may some, know somebody that knows somebody that knows them. And you may, like, this may click a, a link for you. Um, A.A. Forringer is an author who, uh, a blogger, short story guy and stuff like that. And I have played some of his stuff on the air. I've read it or I've played read, him reading some of his stuff. He does some pretty good libertarian angled stuff. He's trying to find a friend that he served in the military with. This friend's name is Raul Perez. He would be in his mid-40s. He served with uh, Mr. Forringer in 93 in Somalia and was stationed uh, at the Fort at Fort Drum with the 10th Mountain Division early 90s. He knows that he returned to his family home on Lover's Lane in Crum, Texas around 94, but have lost the trail since then. He thinks his father might be Raul Perez Sr. in Sanger. Uh, he asked me if I could assist him in finding his old soldier. He said he'd really appreciate it. He contacted Crum PD, the Denton County Sheriff's Department, with no luck and have the word out to Denton PD with no response yet. He has some other leads to run down, but he's beginning to run out of ideas. He thought maybe I could help. I'm not going to be driving around Crum, Texas, asking about this guy. It's just not the kind of thing I do. Um, but um, the reason he's trying to find the guy is this: his military unit that was stationed in Somalia during um, Black Hawk Down are having a reunion, and, and, and they've... Uh, had, had they have Mr. Farringer doing uh, basically for Military Times journalism piece for this, and they also have him kind of shotgunning trying to find people. And this is one of the last people that they can't find. Um, these are the guys that, when everything went south with Black Hawk down, and eventually other troops went out to rescue the guys that were pinned down, this is the unit that did that. Um, 
Mr. Farringer tells me that uh, he ended up staying in the rear, but this guy that we're talking about was one of the guys that went out to get shot at. And I think it would be really great if we could sync them back up. Again, I don't, I don't pretend to think that you know we're that likely to have uh, uh, this happen. But to me, it's like a hail mary pass. Like you know, there's two seconds left in the game. You know, we're on the 30 and going the wrong direction, and you send everybody down, and you just hit, you just hook it out as far as you can and hope. And uh, if anybody out there knows uh, this guy or knows somebody that might know this guy, uh, reach out to me and let me know uh, if you can get me in contact with him, and I'll put him in touch with uh, with Mr. Farringer. And uh, hopefully that uh, hopefully that maybe that can happen. Maybe you know our community can pull off one more amazing thing like this. Because I think that, you know, if it was me, I would want to go see my brothers in a reunion like this. So, anyway, with that, we have uh, wrapped up the intro segment. I want to bring our special guest on now. Again, his name is Derek Boodle. Uh, he is a psychologist and therapist turned author. Uh, his book, again, is called Defending the Innocent from CPS, and it is on uh, Amazon. I have links in the show notes. Uh, he's here to talk to us today about assisting people and keeping their kids away from the government. Uh, if there's ever been a modern survival topic, boy, that's one. And with that, hey, Derek, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Jack. I, I think this is an incredibly important subject. I've been doing this show now for about 10 years, and I've had questions related to CPS come in from time to time. It's something that I said during my intro segment today. I, I feel very blessed that I have no experience with it. Uh, the more I hear, the more frightening it is. Uh, I think one of our guests reached out to you due to a recent question and said, hey, get in touch with these folks. So I'm very, very happy to have you with us today on the subject. Before we dig in there, though, Derek, I like to get my guests connected with my audience so they know who the person is. Take me back. I don't know. You're in study hall, junior year in high school or something, trying to figure out how to ask a girl across the hall from you out or something <laughs> like that. And then you know, now you are this advocate uh, working to help protect families from a predatory state. How, how, how do those two worlds get together? Well, uh, study hall in high school, I pretty much just sat alone and kind of just kept to myself. I really didn't have much connection with anybody. Um, very smart kid. Everybody was always like, wow, you, you know, you got good grades and you're not studying. And I was like, I don't see the point of studying if I'm still getting good grades. <laughs> so... I've actually had a couple of my teachers that were that would yell at me like, "You need to do your homework, or else you're not going to pass this class." Well, if I can pass the test, I'm going to pass the class. So, boy, you, you sound like <laughs> me, dude. You really do. <laughs> so, so uh, ended up going to college. Uh, decided to do pre med. Halfway through, switched to psychology. Um, had a fascination with it. Uh, did 20 years as a as a therapist. I have a master's of psychology from Texas A&M in Kingsville. Also got a, ma a master's of business administration from the University of Rhode Island. So, um, yeah, I was doing therapy, working with individuals at a uh, community mental health center, and uh, one of the clients came up to me and asked for my help. And, uh, you know, I started talking to him, and he told me this story about Child Protective Services and what happened to him. Um, they came... Well, he was bipolar, and he didn't know he was bipolar. It was his first uh, incident, and the neighbors called the police and DCYF because he had a wife and kid. The 
um, the police took him to the hospital to get onto proper medication, and DCYF got involved with his life. While he was in the hospital, they went over to uh, his wife, who had a bit of a learning issue, and said, if, if you do not sign papers to have a protective custody order on your husband, we're going to take your kid and just flat out threaten her. And so, you know, what was she to do? She didn't know any better. So she signed the protective order thinking, okay, well, I'll be able to keep my kid and then I'll be able to fight that later. So my client gets the notice while he's in the hospital recovering from his first bout of mania that he's now homeless and he's also familyless. He's not allowed to go within 50 feet of the home. He's not allowed to see his daughter. He's not allowed to see his wife. Now, I talked to his wife and his wife was like, yeah, I, I didn't feel threatened about it at all. It was all so that I could keep my daughter. And so I, you know, I looked through his record and uh, through his record, I saw that he was with us for about a year and he was uh, taking his meds. He was working with us. He was doing counseling. He was, he was really trying. And so I said, okay, you know, I'll go and I'll try to testify for you. I'll tell them that you're doing, you know, that you're doing great and that we don't see you as a danger and we'll see about maybe getting you visitation or you know start to reunify the family and we went to court <laughs> and you can tell by my voice how, how well this went um they basically handed my ass to me on a silver tray hmm. they um they didn't care that he was stable they didn't care that he was um going through therapy they didn't like the fact that he had threatened him them while he was in a manic state and they were not going to change their mind because of that incident i became a uh, an advocate for families who have cps issues and that was back in 2001 and i've been doing it as kind of a side job you know not even a job. I don't get paid for it. I go in and I help people. I take a look at their cases, try to understand, you know, what, what happened? How did they get into this position? What are the, what's CPS accusing? And see if we can't either find evidence to work around it or see if there's some way to at least maintain a connection with the children while CPS is involved. Yeah, I, I've been doing that off and on since 2001. Um, but recently, I've been in the process of writing it for about two years and what had happened was is I became disabled. Um, I, I have uh, degenerative disc disease and if any of your listeners have that, I'm sorry you're going through the same thing I am because that shit hurt. Um, so I was uh, sitting around and I was like, you know what, this is really bothering me that, you know, I have all this information and all this experience regarding child protective services, but I'm not doing anything with it. So I ended up just putting it down on paper and it ended up becoming Defending the Innocent from Child Protective Services, my book. Since then, uh, things have kind of taken off. You know, the book has only been out for maybe four months and I now have uh, about, I have four specific clients that I'm working with right now and I help people on the website uh, Fight CPS and Know Your Rights. Um, within the past four months, I must have helped 300 people with their cases. Um, that's basically it in a nutshell. Okay, so let's kind of talk about how this this whole thing starts for people. I read an article of yours today on Facebook that I was really impressed with, and I kind of want to talk through some of the stuff that I picked up there. And, and one is, what makes them show up in the first place? You kind of mentioned it with your, your first exposure to this, but can you talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. why you get that knock on the door anyway? Because I think a lot of people think that, like, well, you must have done something wrong. And in this case, at least to be a little tiny bit fair to the system, which I don't like to do at all, at least the guy did have a legitimate problem, right? He had a, it, was a, it was a manageable problem, but he had a problem. I've known people who've gotten that knock that are the best parents you could find on the planet. You don't need to have a problem. Somebody else needs to have a problem. And that's one of the problems with the system. All it takes for DCYF to come knocking on a person's door is a phone call from 
a doctor, a teacher, a gruntled ex, you know, um, somebody who, you know, like a neighbor who sees your kids outside playing and doesn't like that they're outside playing. It can be from anybody. Um, most people don't think that DCYF or CPS is going to be showing up at their front door because we all consider ourselves good parents. But it's not about the way we see ourselves as parents. It's the way other people see us as parents. And if there's something like, you know, a bruise or a misunderstanding between a child and the teacher, all they have to do, and some people have to do it, and it's mandatory. They just pick up the phone. They call CPS. They don't have to give their name. They don't have to give any identification whatsoever. And they make a complaint. Now, that complaint goes into the system, and it has um, it has a couple of tiers. Is it an emergency situation? Is it an urgent situation? Or is it just a, um, a standard situation? Regardless, you know, they're, they're going to go and research and find out what's going on with the family, regardless of which tier it is. The tier just means how fast they're going to get out there. If it's a if it's an emergency, like you know somebody says that they're beating a child, they're going to be out there within the hour. You know, if it's something like neglect, they might take their time, but they do have to investigate. And in all fairness to Child Protective Services, they do have to go out there. You know, it wouldn't be fair to the child to say, "Well, we didn't think it was important over the phone." However, the fact that anybody can call should put everybody on alert because with that you know somebody who just wants to do you harm can just make that one phone call and they can put your life in turmoil for the next three to four years when they do show up most people are caught off guard they really have no idea of what to do because they've never thought of it like i said we all think of ourselves as good parents why would we need to prepare for this but they do show up and they they do get false positives and i work with them all the time when they do show up at the door you know there's some rules that the, that a person needs to follow and there's an understanding that the rules that you would use for police are not the same rules that you would use for DCYF or Child Protective Service. So, I mean, let's go through that. So I'm, I'm sitting here, let's say I'm younger than I am now. I'm an old man now. i got grandkids, you know. But let's say I, I, back when I had my, my son at home, he was a minor. Door knocks. Hi, I'm, you know, blah blah from Child Protective Services. We've received a complaint. What mm-hmm. do I do at that moment right now? Because I know they're going to ask to come in the house. And I, I know from reading your work that that's not what they should get to do. But there's a way to handle this, right? Like, because the police, you just yeah. say, "Do you have a warrant?" No, bugger off, right? You, you can't do that with with CPS. How do I handle that? No. With CPS, the you know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners right now are going, "No, just slam the door. They don't need to know." You know, whatever's going on inside your house, you know, to say get a warrant and slam the door. That is the worst thing that you can do because if they get a complaint that a child is being abused and um, the person says you know, is belligerent and says, get a warrant, they're going to go to their car. They're going to call up the judge and say, we have a report of a, of a child that's being abused. We cannot investigate it. The parent is belligerent and obviously hostile towards us. Can we have the warrant? And the judge will go for the safety of the kid. Absolutely. And then the kid is gone. They, they, they don't even need to knock on the door. They call the police. They, they walk in, they take the kid, they give you the, take work for the protective order, and now you're fighting to get your child back. So there's better ways of handling it. One way is when they knock on the door and they say, yes, I'm such and such from CPS, you say, okay, walk outside, close the door behind you. That shows a signal that they're not allowed inside your house, they're not allowed to look. And then you ask them, so why are you here? You know, They will start to talk about, well, we just need to talk to you about this or that or this. You know, When they do that, it is the parent's job to get information. 
Okay, so they're going to tell you why they're here. Well, why specifically are you here? What do you need from me? What do you need from my kid? You need to ask questions. The more questions you ask, the less answers they're going to have. And they're not there to be to disprove the case against you. They're there to prove the case against. So as you're talking to them, make sure that you keep asking questions. Never let them inside the house. And the one that everybody always forgets, you are allowed to record everything that is said on your property. They might object. They might say, no, 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 we can't talk in front of the, you know, in front of the camera. You just say, you know, this is my house and I feel best if it's recorded. That way yeah. I can play it back to myself later and I'm not going to get confused. And if they decide that they don't want to talk in front of the camera, they can leave. But when they leave, that means that they leave without your child. So that that part is very important. And I think there's probably a tactical way to do that that makes sense. Like I see people like fishing cops and stuff on 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 the internet where they're like shoving the camera in their face. Like mm-hmm. you don't do that. You do this really really politely. I'm just making sure yeah. that we're both very clear on what was said. And what I read in your article was you're probably going to see a change in tone from being very threatening to being very reasonable with you at that point because they don't want to mm-hmm. be – because what, you've, what I've read about this, what I've heard from other people, what I've seen in your work is they threaten you because the thing a parent fears the most is the loss of a child. There, there's nothing more that, that can you know, scare a parent more. So when they say things like, well, we'll just take your kid if you don't let us in, they really aren't supposed to say that and – that's not how it works, but if they're not being recorded, then I never said that. They just let me in, right? Exactly. Child Protective Services lie. The police lie. They're allowed to lie. It, it's, it's actually been tested in court that they are allowed to lie to you to get the information that they need for their cases. And, yes, if you do not record it and it's your word against theirs, then their, their word wins every time. And... When it comes to when you're recording, you need to be on that recording as calm and as pleasant and as easygoing as possible. And it's the hardest thing in the world to do when somebody is threatening your kid. And, you know, you've got to you've got to be as calm as you can be, because you'll see on YouTube a lot of people pull out their cameras and they start yelling at the at the CPS agent. Now, when they do that, what they're showing the judge is that, yes, they are emotionally out of control, they are emotionally abusive, and they are hostile. Unlike the police, these are things that can and will be used against you when it comes to going back to court. Your state of mind makes a difference in court. So you have to be able to show that, yes, you are you are the one who is the calm adult. And hopefully the CPS agent on the, you know, on the recording will make a mistake by, you know, by threatening, by just blindly threatening. Because... A lot of times it's just habit for them. Once you do that, you you start getting evidence to prove your innocence. Plus, you've set a a expectation like says so that 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 audio, that video, what have you, is going to be admissible because it's a public person on your property and knowledge that they're being recorded. So if they claim that you were irate or something, and you're there being perfectly polite, perfectly reasonable, um, however, standing with your rights. And a judge hears that, then he gets to hear what really happened versus what they claim happened. Because I think if it's their word against yours, you're going to lose. But you know, video doesn't lie; it's it, it, it's accurate. Um, exactly. And can you kind of talk about? You mentioned YouTube, like 
the what you see there versus the reality what really happens because I think that mm-hmm. like maybe you get a dummy from CPS and like maybe that works out one in a thousand times or something and then they play that and, or they show somebody reading the letter of the law back to them like they're a lawyer or something but that's probably not how most of this stuff goes down well you know, you have to remember that with YouTube you're only getting a small snippet of what's going on that, that's not the entire story and that's that's not the entire case when those When the CPS agent leaves, they're not gone. They're going to come back. And since they know that you're going to act like that, they're going to come back with a vengeance. So they're going to come back with a warrant. And the police. And the police. And you can spot out all of your rights all day long. You cannot defend them at that point. And that's the problem. At that point, you have to work on your defense. You And saying, well, you can't come into my house because... Uh, the Fourth Amendment says search and seizure. Well, if they have a report of an abused child, that's, that's exigent circumstances. They're going to go in. And just by, and by jumping around and screaming and yelling, you now give them more ammunition to use in court as, you know, this is his mental status. So, yeah, um, you know, when you see those, those cases on YouTube, remember that they're going to come back and you don't see that part. I mean, you, you'll see the good part. Yeah. Where the person is, you know, where the person is like, get the ass out of here and you have to, you know, and they read them the riot act and the person is just standing there going, uh huh, uh huh. But that person is taking notes. They're taking mental notes, right? They're, they're listening to what you say and they're going to go back to their car and they're going to write that up. Well, and what I've always said is when you see a confrontation, the calm person is always the one that has the power Mm -hmm. in reality and in the situation itself. Like if, If you think you're in a bad way because you've been captured by some people and some guy walks in and sits down and very calmly says, I think we have a situation. It's horrifying because that person has no doubt about the fact that they're in total control. And Mm -hmm. that CPS agent that you see on YouTube, to me, they're able to be that calm because they're like, well, thank you because this is all I need. Because now I'm going to make a phone call. Now I'm going to get a warrant. When the police come and you start talking about the Fourth Amendment, cop doesn't even care because he's got a warrant. Now he's got a job to do. The, the, the cop at mm-hmm. that point doesn't even have discretion. Like a cop can come to your house and decide, I've got probable cause, but I don't need to. But once there's a warrant issued and he's sent along with that CPS agent, your door's going open, he's going in, the kid's coming out. And that's why that CPS agent just walks away to me because I don't, I don't have a problem now. Now I can get whatever I want. Yeah. They've, you've, given them, you've given them the exact demo that they need. And it happens so often and it's one of those things that I end up having to try to help resolve in court. You know, that it was the situation at the time that was causing them to be, you know, so erratic. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, it's not their normal standard. Um, How would you feel if someone came to your yeah, door claiming you abused their kid? I mean, I, I get that. Can yeah. you talk about maybe some, some examples of some specific cases that have occurred that you've seen this type of abuse in? Oh, some of the things that, um, but I see is Child Protective Services getting involved with parental custody. Mm. And, and it's, it's horrendous. Because, she, what would be um, the motivation of an angry ex-wife to claim that her husband was abusing the kids? Right? Or the they, other way around. They, they don't look at it that way. They go, we have a report, so, you know, this person is reporting that the other one is abusive, so we've got to go in there and investigate. But when they investigate... They're not investigating to find out what's going on. They're investigating to make a case. And that's a big difference when you really think of it. 
when they go in looking for evidence to make a case, they're going to look for whatever's on the floor. You know, are there toys on the floor? Can they be choking hazards? Okay, so, you know, they go in there just to look to find what they need for that case. But the father could be completely bullshit, right? The, the case could be completely nonsense. And both sides could even admit, yeah, it's, you know, this is because of the... Um, this is because of the custody battle. CPS doesn't care. They got a report, so they're going to investigate, and they're going to find somebody um, liable for this. One of the cases in my book is actually a, it's an extended um, uh, custody battle. The mother had custody. The child had some allergies, an allergy to eggs and to dairy, and the father didn't believe it. The the doctors believed it. The pediatrician believed it. The uh, endocrinologist believed it. The allergist believed it. Father didn't believe it. So on a visitation, takes him to Chuck E. Cheese and gives the kid a slice of pizza. Well, the kid breaks out in a rash. So, you know, he's, uh, he's obviously not doing good. So they take him to the emergency room. The doctor says, you know, what's going on? You know, why, why is he like this? And the father says, because the mother is over medicating him. Has him going to three doctors and uh, says that he's allergic to dairy, but he's not. Well, the doctor in that case, right, whether he believes the story or not, as a mandated reporter, he has to report that to Child Protective Services. He may be like, this story is bullshit. I don't believe it. But they have to report it or else, you know, they put their own license at risk. Sure. So then CPS gets involved and they start looking and they say, oh, yeah, he is going to three different doctors. So maybe this is happening. And in the book, they ended up... Um, accusing her of having Munchausen syndrome by proxy. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I'm yeah, familiar with it. I've seen enough uh, documentaries on it. And it's a thing. People do do it. doesn't sound like it was going on here. Well, it's actually very rare. It, it's, it's one of those illnesses, well, for the listeners that don't know, uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is where one of the parents ends up poisoning the child so that they can get attention from medical staff where the medical staff will say, oh, you're doing such a good job being, being a mother because your child is so sick and has been so sick for so long. They love that attention, so they end up uh, continuing to poison the, their child slowly so that they can get that attention. And this, you know, it wasn't that in this case at all. Um, the kid had actual allergies. DCYF took a look at the paperwork and, you know, took a look at each of the doctor's recommendations and disagreed with them. And and filed charges for Munchausen syndrome and filed for the termination of parents' rights. Um, it was about then I got involved, and we started to look at the case, and it was it was obvious that they just wanted to remove the child from the mother to the father's house, but we couldn't identify why or how or any real connections. So um, we ended up getting her an independent psyche valve to show that she didn't have any mental illnesses. Well, she had a little anxiety, but who would, would expect that? <laughs> yeah, right. Who would expect that? So after they saw that, they ended up dropping the case. But it turns out that the father's aunt worked with the doctor at CPS, and he had contacted his aunt to contact the doctor to set up the case so that CPS would end up taking the child and placing the child with the father instead of um, instead of leaving it with the mother. You know, we can't prove it. We can't say, you know, A, B, C, D, you know, here's the paper trail. But 
we can see where the connection is. So we couldn't sue, but at least we won the case and the, um, and the mother was able to keep her child. <laughs> that one was a rough one. Wow. And you look at that and you go, okay, that, if there was any legitimacy in this system that, that workers were doing their level best under the situation as a matter of course, cannot happen. You go to the doctors, does a kid have a, 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 an area allergy? Yes, they do. Okay. Sorry. We were wrong. That, that, that's how much investigation that requires. And th th what maddening to me there is you can do a medical test to verify a dairy allergy, right? This is something we can do a little mm -hmm. skin prick, and we can go, this person is allergic to dairy. Here's the test results. This is, like, this is kind of, I want you to talk a little bit about the difference between what people think of a courtroom with criminal court mm -hmm. versus the type of courts that you end up, I call them kangaroo courts, um, in this mm -hmm. situation because that in a criminal court would be thrown out and would possibly end up with, if a prosecutor did take that case, might end up in, in deep trouble for even attempting mm -hmm. to prosecute that case once it was demonstrated. But oh, that's, yes. not it would, it how, would be... that's not how family court works. Oh, it would actually be considered in criminal court to be malicious prosecution and frivolous prosecution. And, yeah, the prosecutor would uh, would be up in front of the bar. Um, but let me back up to the case a bit okay. because there's a couple of things that I think that, the, that your listeners need to know. The power that CPS has is extreme. Okay, th these are not um, – These are not low-level people that, you know, you can – they're not low-level bureaucrats. These are people that have a lot of power. They have direct connections to judges, and they have the fear factor on their side. When they talk to, um, when they talk to a doctor, the doctor always has, what is CPS going to do to me hmm. if I go against them? Always has that in their mind. They always have, you know, if you think – Well, I'll call, I'll contact my, uh, my congressman and I'll complain. Your congressman doesn't want anything to do with them because all it would take is for them to go, okay, well, we're going to come to your house and we're going to investigate you. That goes on the news. They're no longer a congressman. They lose the election. They have extreme power, you know, and they have a lot of fear. People who are your closest friends will, will tell you, yes, I'll write you a letter. I'll come to court. You know, I, I, You know, I know that you didn't do this. However, in the back of their minds, they know, um, maybe I shouldn't go because if they went after her, they're going to come after me. And the sad thing is, they're right. Um, the, in my book, you know, I do an acknowledgments page. And in the acknowledgments, I, you know, I, uh, I thank everybody who helped me out with the book, but I'm not allowed to say anybody's name in fear of retribution. And that didn't just happen once. You know, I, I mean, I have a couple of friends who just went through and were like checking for commas, you know, checking for misspellings, things like that. They didn't want their name in the book, even just being that connected, because they were afraid that Child Protective Services would come after them. It, it's, you know, it's very intense, and it's accurate. One of the doctors in that case of the Munchausen syndrome was required to, well, they were forced to uh, retire and not like, oh, you know, we're, you know, I'm going to retire in three months. Here's some referrals. 
he closed his doors within 24 hours mm-hmm. of talking to Child Protective Services. They said, if you go through this, we are going to destroy you. And instead of um, instead of going through you know the uh, the hassle with CPS, he closed his doors, retired, and he's never practiced since. Unbelievable. So, and, and I constantly wait for the day that they're going to come up to my door. Not because I have anything you know that's going on with my kids, but because as soon as they read the book, I expect them to come to the door and say, "You wrote that book. <laughs> We're going to investigate you." And it will be just flat out retribution. But they know that it would it would be up to me to prove that, and that's a problem in court. When you go into um, when you go into criminal court, you know that you know it's up to the prosecutor's job to find you guilty. It's also the prosecutor's job to find you guilty, you know, in a reasonable doubt. Right? They they gotta at least have good evidence to show that not only could you have done it, but yeah, you did it. Then they gotta they gotta get they gotta get twelve people to agree to that. Mm-hmm. That are regular people, just like you, the jury of your peers. Yes, but that doesn't happen in uh, family court. Family court is not set up on the criminal court system. You do not have those protections. You get a judge who oftentimes sees child protective services as kind of white knight. Mm-hmm. They're the heroes of the system because they're taking good children away from bad parents. So he's automatically biased, and the the uh, the evidence that is needed is, depending on the state, preponderance of the evidence. For some states, uh, Texas is one of them, it's uh, clear and convincing evidence. But for most states, it's just preponderance of the evidence. And the difference between the two is pretty much just wording. When More likely um, than not, right? It's kind of what they're saying. Like, if I'm 51%, then that's enough. Usually, yes. I mean, if you, if you went into a civil court for a car accident and, you know, you said, no, it's his fault in... They said, no, it's your fault. And you said, yeah, but um, you didn't have your brake lights done. And they go, oh, um, well, yeah, then you win because you've got just that little bit more of it. Now, family court is set up very similar, except that Child Protective Services is considered an expert witness. I don't make this stuff No, that's disturbing. So, yeah, they, they come in. They take your child. And they ask you to do a couple of things for them. They, they're going to want a psyche valve, right? and they're going to want to talk to you about the case. Now, all this stuff goes into their evidence. Even if you were to say, you know what, I'm not talking to you. I'm not doing any of that stuff. You know, you and I can just go to court with what we got. You'll lose because the judge is going to say, okay, I have an expert witness on this side. I've got a non-expert witness on this side. Evidence weighs up. Expert witness is more. You lose the case. So in family court, you have to prove yourself innocent, and most people don't understand that. So it would behoove you to bring your own expert. Um, if you can find an expert, yeah, that will yeah. that will, will stand up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that becomes see see how this. No, works. I get it. No, it's it's you're bringing a knife to a gunfight, and you've got a butter knife, and they've got an AK. That that's that's how bad it is. Well, not all, well, yeah. Wyatt Earp has has brought his you know, his butter knife. But Doc Holliday is saying, you know what? I don't want to lose my license. Yeah. I, I don't want to go. Yeah. You know, you go ahead. I'm, I'm going to stay over here because there's not going to be a witness on your side because they, CPS is going to go in and say, if you don't agree with us, we're going to take away your license. We're going to investigate you. We're going to slander your name all over the place. You're going to lose all your customers, your patients, and you'll never work in this field again. You'll be a disgrace. 
what would you know what's an expert supposed to do yeah i don't know I, you I, i i feel bad for you but i'm not going to risk my entire career and my family for yours right and you can understand a person taking that stance it's yeah. and it's easy to say i wouldn't but you're not in the position to understand mm -hmm. what it's like to be in that position and you got to remember doctors they didn't just like get out of high school and say okay you know i'm going to be a doctor and you know, just get a license. They went through four years of, you know, of college, four years of uh, grad school, four years of a specialty, or, you know, three years of a residency. They put in a lot of time. They put in over a decade of, of education to get that job. They're not going to risk it because one patient has a problem with child protective services. It's just not worth it. And as bad as all this is, there's something worse. And I was checking out your book when I got the application for you to be on the show, and I looked at the reviews to your book on Amazon, and I read a line that, like, it made me sick. And I didn't even know exactly what I was going to find out when I investigated it, but I knew it was true, and it was, your children are for sale. And mm -hmm. I saw that, and I mean, I felt, honest to God, sick when I saw it. And the reality is, this is tied into the fact that CPS receives federal funding. So can you talk about how that influences this system, the, the fact that there's – I take a kid, there's money for my department. Um, it, it's called the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997. It was Bill Clinton who, who signed it. That should give you a tip off right there, not to get too political. But um, what it's done is it's put a price on every child's head for – Every child that they remove and place into foster services, federal funding goes to from Title Title 4E um, funding, that's the Social Security Act, $4,000 of it goes to Child Protective Services, straight out. Now, if the if the child has some sort of disability, you know, autistic, um, you know, has a learning disability, you know, has a strong enough pair of glasses, Child Protective Services will receive $6,000 to $8,000, depending on the type of disability that they have. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you consider that, you know, it, would, it doesn't take much for them to take 20 kids, 20 times 4,000, that's $80,000 per month just for 20 kids. They don't just get paid by the federal government either. The document that, um, so go back to the document, when they take your child, they present something called a case plan. Now, this case plan is what they want to do in order for you to have your child back. It's bullshit. Don't sign it. Okay. Basically, it's a contract saying that you're guilty. If you sign that, you've said that you're guilty. Holy and you're crap. Going, and you're, um, you've basically thrown all your chances of, of going to court right down the street. But they present it as, okay, well, this, you know, we're not saying that you did it, but this is the stuff that we want you to do in order to get your child back. Well, as a parent, you're going to do whatever it takes to get your child back. They're, they're saying, okay, you know, well, you know um, if I go to counseling or if I go to rehab or if I go to... Um, You know, if I bend over backwards like this or that, you know, I'll get my kids back in like two months. Yes, fine. I'll sign it and I'll get it done. As soon as they do that, they've got you because you just agreed to do everything on their list. You just agreed that you're guilty and, you know, they've, uh, they're in the driver's seat. If you do all those things on that list, what ends up happening is that they change the list. They'll say, okay, that was the first step. Now here's another one that we want you to do. And it'll be a list of something different, still difficult. But they're going to keep the kid. And the reason that they do that is because they receive funding from the state. And that contract that you just signed gives them funding from the state budget for every child that they work with. So they can 
they can go back to the office and say, okay, I worked with um, Johnny's family for one hour and I can bill for that. I worked for Susie's family for one hour and I can bill for that. If you don't sign that, they can't do that. So if you don't sign it, they're going to take you to court because they want their money. This is how they get paid. If they, you know, if people didn't sign it, they wouldn't get paid and you know, they, they would just go broke. And, and I think that like, there's like, Probably a disconnect for some people here that don't get government. Sadly, I do. Um, the individual that's doing the job, that's actually going out and doing this, may not be sitting there thinking, I'm doing this to get money. Because they don't get a commission or something like that. But they are judged on their performance on this. Somewhere in that bureaucracy is an upper-level bureaucrat that understands where their funding comes from, that's setting policy for the entire department. And when you hear things going down, like right now, all the stuff about you know corruption in, in the FBI, for instance, they're saying, well, it's these, these top guys. It's not the rank and file. The rank and file of any bureaucracy will be a reflection of the people within that bureaucracy that set the policy for it. And if you mm -hmm. have cancer at the top, you know what happens to cancer in a person. It goes everywhere. And when you have a system like you're describing, there is no other outcome that a person could expect to occur Then this one. This the, if you set this up this way, because this is how money works, this is how people work, this is how power works. This is the only result you should expect. Mm -hmm. And that's I, why whenever I go ahead, sorry, that's why whenever I talk to somebody about their CPS case, the first thing I ask is, what are the charges? Did you sign that plan? Because if I know what the charges are, we can find a way to prove that they're not true. That's the easy part. If they sign that plan, that makes it a lot harder because now they're signing that, yes, they're willing to do what it is because they're guilty. And the people who come to the door, to the door, you got to think of them as you would a military. Okay, the, the people on the front lines, they're just doing what they're told. They're told to go here. They're told to go there. They're told to shoot at this specific group. They're told to shoot at that specific group. They're told to protect this, you know, this area here. They don't know why. They really don't. Most CPS workers have no idea about the money or that they get federal funding for each child removed. All they know is my boss is happy whenever I uh, remove a kid. So I must be doing something good. You know, I must be doing something that, um, that I can be proud of because my boss is telling me, yeah, um, you're doing a great job and you know, you're, you're saving a lot of kids when it's not about saving the kids. It hasn't been about saving the kids since Uh, 1995. It's about the money. Simple money. When they come to the door, that's all they're looking at. If you were to let them in, they're going to look at uh, whatever they can, say that it's unsafe, and take the job because they make their money that way. Yeah, I read in your article, you're like, you know, kids, homes with children in them are always messy. I mean, you know, my, my granddaughter comes over here. We have everything put away perfectly. We, we watch them every day. And five minutes after that little kid gets let loose, she's a two-year-old toddler. Every toy's yanked out. Things are everywhere. You know, we're doing our best to teach mm -hmm. and clean up. But, okay, now put yourself in a position. You're a single mother with three kids. There's going to be stuff on the floor. That's what kids do. And it's mm -hmm. not, there's not a danger to that child. But, well, now it's evidence in the hands of, and this, this kind of scares the hell out of me when you said this, of expert witness. So you're allowing the investigator to effectively be an expert witness. This is another example. Mm -hmm. Like That doesn't work in criminal court. Now, you might have a forensic investigator that's part of the department that can be seen as an expert witness, but the cop doesn't get to be an expert witness. The guy with a degree in forensics 
with laboratory results gets to be a forensic expert. Not just, well, who are you? Well, I'm the detective in charge of the case. Okay, gee, you're an expert witness. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, and then, oh, and your department gets money. I, and you get promoted. And I mean, it's just, it, it is a, a sick thing that we even have this organization. Have you met CPS agents that when you got involved basically did the right, have you ever met any that like basically are doing the right thing? No. Um, that's, I wish that's, I, that's depressing. <laughs> well, because it goes back to what I said earlier. They don't know. They're just doing their job. It goes back to, to that old axiom of, you know, I'm doing my job and, you know, I don't want to know what's going on above me or beneath me. I just want to go in, do what I need to do, get my paycheck, go home, get drunk, sack out, wake up, and go out and do it again. That's that's their focus. It's the people that are above them that are saying, yeah, uh, take the child because we need the money, and we're not going to – what we're going to do is we're going to hold this child for as long as possible, and then we're going to adopt the child out. There's There's been kids on in foster care three, four, five years that we're on a reunification plan. Now, a reunification plan is one where CPS says, yes, we'll give you the child back as soon as you take care of all this stuff. And once they take care of that stuff, the plan switches almost immediately from reunification to the termination of parental rights. It's, because that's what, because that's where the money is. That's where the best thing for the bureaucracy is. There's, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a thinker named Jeffrey Pornell, but he had a thing called Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy. And the Iron Law worked like this. In any bureaucracy, any organization large enough, there will be two types of people, those committed to the mission and those committed to the bureaucracy itself. Right? Like The, the, the thing mm -hmm. is more important than the job. And the people that are committed to the bureaucracy will always be the ones... 100% of the time that rise to the levels of power within the bureaucracy. And no bureaucracy is immune to this. So those people that are more committed to CPS as a thing than the job CPS is supposed to do will always be the ones that end up in positions of power within the bureaucracy. And, you know, the man calls it an iron law. I, I'm not saying that there's not an exception to it. I am saying in 10 years of looking, I have yet to find one. Um, I haven't met one yet. Yeah, and it, it's very sad. So, yeah. as we get ready to wrap up here, can you tell people a little bit, you know, more about your book? Maybe blend in a current case or something like that, and because uh, I think that like hearing what actually is happening to people is a wake up call. Like what I said before you were on the air is, I think everybody should get a copy of this book because there is a high chance that any parent is going to have to deal with some level of contact at some point, and knowing. Like So what I got out of you today more than anything else is, yeah, there's things we can do once this is in process, but the most important thing is heading it off before it gets ahead a, a of wind up. Mm -hmm. uh, most lawyers don't understand how to fight child protective services because it's a completely different aspect than what they were taught in law school. They were taught the civil court. They were taught the criminal court. But this is a completely different set of rules. And if a criminal lawyer goes into court you know, thinking, okay, you know, what – You know, I don't have to prove anything. All I have to do is, you know, is wait and show that they don't have enough evidence. The case is lost. If a civil attorney goes in there, they're not going to know exactly how to get all the information that they need. So you really have to find a very specific type of attorney, not just one that specializes in family law, but one that specializes in child protective services law. If I can give, you know, a tip, that would be my number one tip because... If you go in there by yourself, you're going to lose. You're not going to be able to present any information, any witnesses, any evidence 
the court's going to ignore you and you're going to lose. If you have the wrong attorney, same thing is going to happen, except that you'll be paying them a lot of money to do it. So you need to find the exact lawyer and then take a proactive stance on your case and actively disprove, find evidence to disprove whatever charges they come up with. One in three family are going to be uh, touched by some sort of DCYF claim in their lifetime. One out of three. It might not be direct. It might not be um, your own child. It might be your grandchild. You know, it might be your nephew. But one out of three. That's a lot. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's well, we talk about us being prepared for the for something to go wrong here, right? So that's a pretty high. Mm-hmm. And I talk about what they call you know probability of disaster. And I think you and I would both agree CPS showing up at your door equals disaster. No matter the, the best comes from it, it's still a disaster, at least a potential disaster. So if a one in three is the probability, it should be pretty high up on things that you prepare for, because I think the best thing people can do is no matter how sure you are this won't apply to you, be prepared for it if it does. I, I, I carry mm-hmm. a gun, and if you try to hurt me or hurt my family or hurt somebody else, and I have no other choice, I will shoot you. I think the probability mm-hmm. that I ever have to do that is very, very, very low. But in the one in 10,000 chance that it happens that somebody's going to die in front of me because I couldn't defend them, I carry that gun. Mm-hmm. I think the odds that you'll have to deal with... So, And I know my audience... Heavy Second Amendment folks, most of the people that are in this audience carry, you have a very slim need or very slim probability that you will need that weapon, but you carry it because of the possibility. I think Mm -hmm. you have a really high probability that you or someone you love will face this and you need to be able to help them. So I I really recommend people get a copy of your book. And if anybody is already involved, I'm on uh, Fight CPS in know your rights i'm always there i'm well, not always there but are i'm the, there enough that are those facebook just, are those facebook groups yep it's a facebook group okay just, uh, feel free to you know to send me a, a private message um there are a lot of good moderators on there that have um that have experience with cps and uh they do a lot of good work to try to help people who are um who end up getting involved and don't know what to do don't know what their next step is. And I'll look both of those groups up and make sure that they're in the show notes. And um, oh, It's actually the same group. It's oh, it's CPS one group? And, yeah, one group. Fight CPS and know your rights. I'll find it and I'll make sure that it ends. Oh, I found it right there. I got it. All right, I'll make sure that that link to that group is, is available to people. And I wish what you had to say would have been in some way comforting, but it cannot be with something like this. But it does give people a pathway and an understanding and a knowledge of what to do. And I think that... The fact that people would now know CPS shows up, be calm, be courteous, be polite, be firm, and have your phone in your hand videotaping the interaction alone is a priceless bit of advice because it does eliminate, well, that's not what happened. Well, actually, we can look at it. We can see exactly what happened now, can't we? And Mm -hmm. I think you're under... Go ahead. It's tough and cold. And your other advice about polite, calm demeanor, right? Because like, I know, mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody came to me and told me I was abusing my kid, my initial response is I want to choke slam them. I'm talking WWF 1980s style, you know, Macho Man Savage choke slam is what I want. Oh, yeah. yeah I know right? what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? right? So that's what I want to do. But that's, that is not in my best interest. That is not in the best interest of my, my children. So... 
what I would need to do then is be, really? And like you said, ask them questions. Ask them questions. I think one of the things that you said in your article that I want to kind of finish with here is you also need to be, I think you said, dumb like a fox, right? So yeah. when you answer a question, do not provide any more information than is necessary. One of your examples was if they, are, they ask you, do you use drugs? Don't say, no, I don't use drugs. I went through rehab in 2001 and have been clean ever since. Because now you have a prior drug problem. You say, no, I don't use drugs. And that's it. Like, mm -hmm. the minimum amount of information necessary to answer the question. That's it. And if you can get away with it, ask them, why would you think that I use drugs? Ah. Because then you're not giving them information. You're stopping them from gaining it. Now they have to answer you. Yeah, yeah. Why you know, do you think I'm using drugs? What makes you think that I'm using drugs? Why would you think that... Um, that there's a problem with my child. Well, I don't. You keep well, then why would you ask, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So you keep asking those kind of questions, and the more that the more that that happens, the more frustrated they are, the less information they get, and the better off you can walk in court. And always expect that you're going to go to court. You're not going to change CPS's mind by talking to them. All right. Well, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, Derek, and uh, thank you for coming on on the show. And uh, I think that thank you for having me. I think that your advice will really help people. And again, I'm going to have links to the Facebook group and links to uh, where you can get Derek's book. Guys, please check it out. And again, Derek, thank you for being with us today. Again, you guys want to talk about an important topic. I mean, that's it right there. And I mean, I'll just relate a quick story to you to how how deep seated this fear is and and how much we need to get control of it so that if you do end up confronted, you can you know, deal with it appropriately and not make some of the mistakes we talked about today that all of a sudden let the, the camel's tent into the nose and then, of course, the whole thing's there not long thereafter. Uh, a few years ago, my son, around Christmas time when everything's crowded and what have you, um, had his son uh, at Costco, and I think Bray at the time was like four, something like that, and he decided to throw a tantrum and a fit in the store. And, and Matthew, being a level-headed guy and, and not wanting to disturb other people, simply picked him up, walked out of the store with him. Just walked out of the store with him. He can throw a fit all he wants, walk over by their car, set him down, and had a very simple conversation with him. Son, you know, we're not going to behave this way, and you can either settle down and we'll go back inside, or we're going to get in the car and we're going to go home. I'm sure a well-meaning couple followed him to his car, and apparently when they were standing there watching what was going on, they wrote down his license plate number. Um, so a little tip there might be is if you ever have to do this, stand next to somebody else's car, you know, let them write the wrong person's car down. Uh, nothing ever came of it, but it was about a week of kind of living on eggshells going like, am I going to get a visit over this? Because it is something that simple where a parent did exactly what they should have done. We're not talking about a kid getting a, a belt on his butt or something like that. We're talking about basically a timeout and done so at the consideration of other people in a public place. I'm not going to let my kids scream and yell in the middle of a store. We're just going to leave. And then we're going to talk about it, and we're either going to go home or we're going to go back in. But we're not going to cause a scene in public because that's called being a good, solid disciplinarian. Very proud of my son for the way he handles you know, being a father now. But the fact that not only would somebody stick their nose into that, But something as simple as a phone call could result in a knock on the door, and if you think you have to and you let them in, dirty dishes could lead to a cascade of events that, oh, there's something wrong here, and then the burden of proof becomes yours, 
not the states. This is different than when you're accused of a crime. When you're accused of a crime, the burden of proof is on the state to prove the crime was committed. Once you're accused of being a, a, a negligent parent or an abusive parent or something like that, the burden of proof is on you to prove that you're not. And it's, it's, it's very difficult to prove a negative. And that's why the state has such an advantage here. And then the whole PR campaign, and if something must be wrong, it must be your fault. It's, it's, it's the state being the state. Remember, Spirico's fifth law of life. All power granted to the state will be used with corruption and incompetence. This is one of those powers I really don't think the state should have. And if it's going to, not in the way that it does. And if you don't, you know, if you don't believe that after hearing what you heard today, I really don't know what to say. Anyway, moving along, if you, if you do enjoy this show and you like the work that we do, please consider supporting us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you'll help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. And I do have items of the day up for review. This is one I brought around a bunch of times before. I'm bringing it back around because we're heading into hurricane season. And right now, of course, everybody's hauling ass out of the Carolinas, and, and you should be. I've heard that most people are heeding evacuation orders. If you're one of them that's there and you're not, you're stupid. Leave. Now. Get out. I just had to throw that little PSA in there. If you are where evacuation orders have been issued for this storm and you're not in your car leaving right now or already have, you are wrong. You are stupid. And we're going to have our people and other responders trying to save your ass in a few days. So get out. The less people that stay, the better. But here's what I think is going to happen. This is going to be a major epic storm yet again. And everybody's going to go, and do everything they can to help. And it's going to be like there's going to be another one that hits right behind it somewhere else. And that one's going to get not quite the attention. Okay, Think of Hurricane Harvey and the storms that came after that one. And so you're going to have to support yourself if you're in this area. One of the primary things that we need to be able to deal with, even if we're not in the major disaster impact areas of these storms, is being without power. So I am a huge fan of the Anchor Astro E7 portable charger. This thing will charge an iPhone 10 times. I get over a day out of my phone on a single charge if I'm not playing around and farting around, if I'm actually just using it as a phone. So 10, 10 charges, 10 days from one charge. You can charge it from your car. Um, when I had Stephen Harris on last time, we were talking about bugging out. He said he liked this product, except he didn't recommend it anymore because it doesn't have a percentage charger. It just shows you basically, you know, one bar, two bar, three bars, four of charge. I find that to be ridiculous, honestly. I, you know, just, I just cur courteously disagree with Steve on that because it's not going to change how you use it. There is not another product that gives you this much backup power for this price that's this good, that this well-backed by a company like Anchor. You're talking about 26,800 milliamp hours. You're talking about being able to charge you know, an iPad three times. Okay, to put the power in perspective. And this is one of the features on it I really like. It has two ports for input for charging. If you hook up a cable to each one and put them both to a charger, yes, both of them go, and it charges the whole battery pack faster. So it is a fantastic charger. For how much it holds, it's very compact. You can see a picture of it in a review that I did. I recommend this is what you do. I also have a little Anchor, anchor plug-in uh, charger that I recommend. You plug it into your cigarette lighter. It takes two uh, charging cords. You take that, you put that in your car, you leave it there. 
you plug into it, and you plug this thing into your charger, your, your anchor charger, or whatever charger you have. And when you get in your car and you're driving around, you charge your phone while you're driving around like most of us do, plug into the battery pack. It's like, it's like using a rain barrel that's hooked up to a bigger water container then. It's always getting refilled as you go. Okay? Uh, and that way, when something goes wrong, you have that much power at your disposal all the time. You do that with one in each vehicle, and you're going to be able to keep your basic electronics operational during a disaster so that you can figure out what to do with all the other problems that you're going to have. If this was not the best product for this use that I know of, I would just recommend the one that's better. I've been recommending this one for two years now. I am constantly on the lookout for one that I honestly believe that dollar for dollar and on reliability is a better product. I have not found one yet. When I do, I will tell you, and I won't apologize if you bought this one, because this one will last you years. I have one that's over two years old. It's in my truck, just like I just described it. It still works. It still holds a charge. It still has a massive capacity. It's out there probably when it shouldn't be in the heat in Texas with the door closed, and I don't run the truck that much. And if it'll survive that, it'll survive the use that most of you give it. Communications are your lifeline, both information in and information out in a disaster. We're heading into this time of year. Get the Astro E7 if you don't have it already. You can find it at tspaz.com. And as long as you do your online shopping at tspaz, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is Why Me by Sticks, And it's another one of those times where what John Adam picked oddly fit the show. Uh, I, I can't think of a situation where you might not say, why me, uh, harder uh, than you get a knock at your door and it's somebody from the government that's supposed to be there to help. In the words of Ronald Reagan, uh, those are the most terrifying words that a person can hear. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, so I can understand why me that way. And, and then this song's about hard times coming. And you, know, you can be on the top of the world one day and everything knocks you down the next. And you're, it's okay for you to say, why me? But that's a totally natural human response. That's what this song's about. Like, it's okay. And by the way, it'll probably get better, but it's all right to feel that way. And I agree to a point. I agree to a point. I think that if you if your initial reaction to bad things is generally why me, you will experience more bad things. You will set your life up for failure. When I saw this selection for a song by John today. I looked at it and said, immediately, the thing that I think would create the greatest contrast with it is the, the, the poem by Rudyard Kipling, If. And so I decided to do something that I've actually never done with a song of the day before today. I want to create a contrast, a dramatic contrast. Uh, I found an audio rendition of Sir Michael Caine reading the poem If. When I heard him read it, I'm like, that's the guy I want to do this with. But I noticed that the segment was about four minutes long. And when I noticed that, I'm like, well, he's going to have to be talking about this, and I probably really won't do that, but I'll just, I'll just grab that audio, and I'll just edit that out. Well, as he got to the end, they kind of switched the camera angle, and he discusses what the poem means to him. As an actor, he talks about how you know having your words tw twisted by knaves and made a trap for fools, describes the press. And he has some comments on war as well. And I realized 
that it made the contrast that I was looking for even more dramatic. So this is what I'm going to do today that's a little bit different. I'm going to play Sir Michael Caine reciting Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, and then that'll fade into the song of the day and look at the contrast. Because in the end, why me, while a perfectly natural human reaction, doesn't change something that's so critically important to understand. Even when things that go wrong in your life are not your fault, they are still your responsibility. Because if you're not going to deal with them, who is? You can say it's not fair, it's wrong, why me, until you are blue in the face. But in the end, if there is going to be a point where you are picked up off the ground and go forward and put things back together, it's going to be you that has to do it. Even if others help you, the one that actually has to do the doing is you. And it's up to you if you will do that or not. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowances for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor look too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life for broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at the beginning and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are done and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you, but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 40 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. The Kipling poem is, is one of my favorites since, since I was a, a boy at school. My father read it to me once. And I think it, 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 to me as a little boy, it summed up what a man should be. And later on, when, it, when I became an actor, it, 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 there were a couple of lines in there that, that affected me. It's, uh, one was, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, it's a very good thing for an actor because an actor's life doesn't consist of any medium things. Everything is either a hit or, or absolute disaster. So there was that one. And then there is another line, which is, if you can hear the words you've spoken 
twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools. Well, that's the press as far as actors are concerned, <laughs> because you're always seeing something and you go, wait a minute, I never said that. <laughs> And so it, 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 it stayed with me all my life, right until this very day, you know. The war, for a start, took my dad away for six years. I never forgave it for that, you know. War disrupts everything. I was evacuated on my own and ill-treated and all that sort of... Everything went wrong, you know. Peace, things go right. I was a soldier when I was 19. I, I spent my 19th year in Korea. As a, as a fusilier infantryman. And so I know what I'm talking about when I talk about war, and it's the most disgusting thing that you could ever think of. And I've also noticed with every single war has been declared by men who are too old to go, and it's made me suspicious. <laughs> I guess we used to be the lucky ones. A voice said you best beware Stop, stop Bad luck is everywhere Sure enough The voice was right My luck had changed Oh, whoa, oh, night Stop, stop Please tell me what went wrong Stop, stop I can't take these ups and downs Hard times come Your heart.